0: I walked through the scriptures and, and uh, uh, late at night toiling over what does this scripture mean, you know, pulling a commentary. Let me see what this means. And so i honestly, I've really enjoyed that. I didn't, I never did that before. <laughs> and I, as a pastor, I felt responsible for trying to preach the word as, as, as closely as it could to, to really what it meant. And I always got to the point where I thought Jesus was on the front row, and I didn't want to disappoint him by saying something incorrect. Uh, although, I'm not going to tell you, everything is 100%, but I'm trying to get close. Yeah. You know, you know I, I get close. So, uh, so um, Pastor Ernest said, hey, well, you, well, come back. And I said, yes, uh, we're, we're in the book of uh, Luke. But as soon as we finish that, we'll be happy. I just come because I want to finish this. But you know what? I didn't finish it. (laughs) I didn't finish it. It's going to take a little longer than I thought. So we just talked, figured out a good time, and we stopped. And you have the pleasure of taking up where we left off. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 22 today. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Now, you've got to understand the uh, background that leads us to this point jesus has been ministering for three years he's been traveling from place to place he's been sharing with people he's been going to anywhere he can a synagogue to be able to uh, share his word he he goes to the mountain to to the water to the side to the the boat he uses anything he can to reach any group that he can to try to give them the good news so jesus has been doing this for three years and he's He's coming to a different part of his ministry. He's coming back to Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem before, but he's coming back now. Because this is the final, final. this getting to the final part of, his, of, of what is his ministry on earth. So he comes to Jerusalem during the Passover season. Passover season, it's time. There's, uh, his, his disciples are there. He, he came in with a, on a on a mule, on a donkey, and people were so excited about him coming. And he's just—he's uh, in Jerusalem, and uh, that's where we, we take up verse twenty-two, chapter uh, chapter twenty-two, verse one. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. You know, there's this festival of unleavened bread was a celebration that occurred at the same time the Passover was. And it was kind of a separate celebration, but then there was the Passover. But eventually those things came together. It was no longer separate. It became part of the same celebration. And as we know, uh, Passover was the celebration of the angel of death passing over any home that had the blood of the lamb sprinkled around the, the door. Passover was also a celebration of a journey from slavery to freedom. From bondage with Egypt to the promised land. Verse two, the leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. You got to get the picture. Uh, We know that the... um, New Year's is coming. And a lot right now, people are re- already making uh, arrangements to travel. They want to travel where? To New York. Everybody wants to travel, or a lot of people want to travel to New York to see that ball come down. I'm not sure why, but people love it. Apparently it's popular. You see it on TV, so hey, I want to be there too. Okay. (laughs) So that's what's going on. In the same kind of way, the Passover was a time where many people made travel arrangements to go to Jerusalem to be part of that celebration that was occurring. The temple was there, the beautiful, wonderful temple that uh, is just... Massive and, and looked indestructible. But if, if you look at the chapter before, chapter 21, you'll find out that it would be destroyed. <laughs> Although it looked indestructible, 40 years later or so, it would be destroyed. No stone left on top of a stone. People are traveling there. They go to Jerusalem and they're camping on the outside of the city just so they could be part of the festivities. The city is overcrowded with people. There was a great expectation in the air regarding Jesus and his ministry. People had heard about him, had seen him in the region. He was getting all the attention. Kind of like Pastor, pastor Ernest said, hey, Pastor David's coming. David, pastor David, I'm getting the attention. Wait a minute. Well, what about me? Pastor Ernest might say, what about me? I'm the pastor of this church. That's kind of like what the, the Pharisees and the scribes were saying. What about us? We're the religious leaders here. We're the ones who went to the University of Jerusalem. We're, we're the ones who, who went to Bethlehem College. What about us? Who's this guy? He, what, what credentials does he have? He didn't get any scholarship to go anywhere. He didn't study under anybody. Who is this guy? We don't even, he, he, he's not what, he doesn't do things the way we do. So they're angry. They're upset. Their hatred grew and grew to the point that they wanted to silence him and ultimately kill him. Verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. Verse 4. And he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus. I'm going to tell you, church, although Satan may have prompted and even guided Judas in this terrible thing, this does not diminish Judas's personal responsibility because Satan cannot cause you to do something against your will. We will always retain the ability to choose sin or righteousness. We really don't know why Judas did it. There are many theories. One theory is that Judas expected to have a major position in Jesus' reign when he would take over in Rome. He expected that Jesus would come in upset the government, take over, and all of a sudden the disciples, you're going to be my vice president, you're going to be my cabinet, you're going to be my secretary of state, you're going to be my U.S. attorney general, you're going to be giving out these positions. Much like much of the presidential candidates right now may look have people helping them in anticipation of them getting something in return. Right. Judas may have had that in his mind. But when it became apparent that Jesus had no intention of doing what Judas expected, perhaps Judas felt misled, betrayed. Church, we cannot allow ourselves to get upset with Jesus when he fails to meet our expectations. <laughs> we're, we're not looking for him to meet our expectations. We're trying to meet his Let's get everything right. Judas had the wrong idea. Verse five, they were delighted and they promised. There's talk, talk about the religious leaders. They were delighted and they promised to give him money. Verse six, so he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to, opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. The religious leaders needed a way to take Jesus down without the support of the crowd because the crowd was behind him. They were filling up the temple when he showed up. They wanted to hear what he had to say. His words were unique. He spoke with authority. He said things that the religious leaders of his time did not say. They They would have protected Jesus. So they needed to get to him. And now they had an inside man The money was also a point of simple greed, a way to profit himself at Jesus' expense. Verse 7, now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Verse 8, Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. You know, Jesus wanted to spend some quality time with his disciples before his great sacrifice. His disciples would be greatly tested, and he wanted to share this time with them. And some, some believe, if you really study this, that they actually uh, celebrated the Passover a, little, a bit before everybody else did. That's not that important for this purpose, but verse 9 where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Verse 10. He replied, As soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters. Verse 11. Say to the owner, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? First, Jesus gives his disciples what would be an unusual sight. That is a man carrying water in a pitcher. That was generally what women did. They carried water in pitchers. Men carried water in animal skins during this time. So they gave them an unusual thing to look for. There is some indication that Jesus was trying to keep this somewhat quiet because he didn't want the opportunity for him to be able to share with his disciples to be interfered with by some betrayal by Judas earlier verse 12 he will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up that is where you should prepare our meal verse 13 they went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus said I'm going to tell you that's the way we find things just as Jesus says they would be and they prepared the Passover meal there Apparently, they found this large room and it had to be in a large house owned by somebody of wealth and position. Some of the commentators believe it could have been the house of Nicodemus, it could have been Joseph of Arimathea or some wealthy family or friend of a disciple. The upper room had been, already been prepared beforehand for the purpose of this feast. You know, some Some other commentaries believe this same upper room was the same upper room that disciples gathered together after Jesus was crucified and the risen Christ came and met them. Some people believe this same upper room was a place in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and gave the, the utterance of the speaking in tongues. Verse 14, when the time came, Jesus and the disciples sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The preparation was made. Some of the customary dishes were laid out. And the Lord gathered with all his disciples. This was a passionate time because Jesus wasn't saying goodbye to them, necessarily. But the time had come for the central reason that he came to, to this earth, to begin a new thing with his people based on his personal sacrifice. This was the beginning of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. In Revelations nineteen nine, it tells us that there will be a feast in heaven, a wedding feast, a marriage supper, and Jesus will be gathered with his people there, and they will be that, there will be that great feast. Kind of like the great feast you have when you go to Coulter's. <laughs> a great feast. <laughs> Verse 17. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Verse 18. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. You know, Jesus, by his words and his actions, shows us and shows his disciples that the Passover wouldn't ever be the same again as the feast celebrated in centuries past. They had celebrated this Passover in centuries past, but with the rituals that Moses had put in place. But now, from this point forward, from this time, it would be superseded by a new Solemn religious ritual. It'd be different. The traditional Jewish Passover was to give way to the Christian sacrament, also known as the Holy Eucharist, the bread and the juice that we know today. This was instituted by Jesus at this time. Verse 19 He took some bread, gave thanks to God for it, then he broke it in pieces. I'm going to say that he broke it in pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. I'm going to tell you, Jesus didn't use the old Jewish meaning. He now gives the new meaning, gives new meaning to the bread and wine. The traditional meaning was the unleavened bread. It was unleavened because the Jews left in haste and the dough didn't have time to rise. This was the bread of affliction, meaning how the Israelites were treated by the Israelites. Egyptians representation of that. Essentially how followers of God are treated by non-believers. The bread of affliction. When we eat that, that's what we need to remember. Well, that's what they remembered. The bitter herbs. The bitter herbs stood for the bitter slavery. Salt water was remembered by the tears shed during the oppression that the Jews suffered. The wine was the was the drink of redemption from slavery. That was the old interpretation. That was the old basis for this Passover meal. The traditional symbols, though, are reinterpreted as they relate to Jesus now with a focus not off the suffering of Israel and Egypt, off the redemption that occurred in the Old Testament, and now on the sin-bearing and suffering of Jesus on their behalf. The broken bread should cause us to remember how Jesus was broken, how he was pierced, how he was beaten for us in place of our sins. When we drink the wine, it should cause us to remember that his blood was shed to cleanse us of our sins. And unless, the word tells us, unless we eat the broken bread, And remember how Jesus suffered in body for us. And unless we drink the wine and remember his blood was shed for us, then we have no life in us. That's the word, church. Verse 21. But here at this table, Jesus is speaking, sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me. Verse 22, for it has been determined that the son of man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? Verse 23, the disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? Obviously, G- Judas was a member of the inner circle of disciples and was present when Jesus passed the bread and the cup to his disciples. Judas knew what he was going to do, and despite the fact that Jesus knew it, it still didn't prevent him from continuing in his sin. Jesus, Judas was and is still accountable to God for his sin. Judas kept his secret from the other disciples because no one ever suspected it was him. All the other disciples, you can imagine asking, him, is it me? Is it you? What, what's going on? Because knowing the disciples and you and I must know that we're all capable of committing evil once we lose our way. Let us not forget, we're just a bad decision away. We've got to make sure we fight for that, not making that bad decision like Judas did. Verse 24, then they began to argue. I'm going to tell you, they just spoke about this. Now they, verse 24, then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. You know, it's frightening to think that Jesus poured three years of his life into these disciples. They knew what he had done. They knew what he had, had seen him, heard him speak. They knew about his character. And now at this serious hour, They argued about which one of them was the greatest among his disciples. And this was a conversation that occurred more than just this one time. Church, I'm going to put it back on us. Some could argue that we know much more about Jesus than his disciples did. We've spent more than three years in his word and hearing about him. So are we not just as accountable for our actions? Verse 25, Jesus told them in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. Verse 26, but among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. What Jesus is saying is the world exercises authority and power with a certain style. All of it ultimately exalting self. Look at me. Serve me. Attend to me. Yet Jesus wasn't like that, nor should his followers be. Jesus showed us that the greatest of all should be the servant of all. Although the world regards the one who is served as greater, Jesus is showing us that true greatness is in the serving more than in being served. Verse 27. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. Cultures and people always envy the person who others serve. In ancient China, ancient China, those with wealth would let their nails grow and let their nails grow really long so that they were unable to do anything for themselves. They had to have people do things for them. So that was a, a, sta, a, a symbol of status that they had. You saw them with long nails. You knew they had to be people in position and had money that people could do everything else for them. The really great people in our lives are the ones who serve. If President Trump took a month off and went and played golf at one of his resorts, nobody would probably miss him. But if the uh, trash man and the people that have run the trains and and, and are gone and on vacation and they take a month off we are in trouble (laughs) we're looking about what are we gonna do we value those who serve the very greatness of jesus is finally demonstrated not in the height and glory of the throne that he has but in the depth That he came down and stooped to our level of humanity. And died on the cross for every one of us. He came from such a high place. To take the lowest place. That's greatness. I'm going to stop there because Rebecca's come in. And I uh, don't want to go too long. So I want to tell you a quick story. There was a former top law enforcement official in the Mexican government. A top law enforcement official charged by the United States government with accepting millions of dollars in bribes in exchange for providing protection for Joaquin El Chapo Guzman's notorious drug cartel. Hernando Garcia Luna was 51 when he, was, when he served in the cabinet post overseeing Mexico's federal police he was indicted by a federal grand jury in Brooklyn last week on three counts of cocaine trafficking and one count of making false statements in his role for allowing the Sinola cartel to operate without, with impunity in Mexico. He was arrested in Dallas, and the United States Attorney General's Office for the Eastern District announced that it had unsealed the indictment. They said today's arrest demonstrates our commitment to bring to justice those who help cartels inflict devastating harm on the United States and Mexico, regardless of the positions they held while committing their crimes, the U.S. attorney said. Garcia Luna served as Mexico's Secretary of Public Security from 2006 to 2012 and has been living in the United States since 2012. If convicted, he faces a minimum of 10 years in prison and a maximum of life of a life sentence. The Sonola cartel obtained safe passage for its drug shipments, received sensitive law enforcement information about investigations into the cartel and information also about rival drug cartels in exchange for millions of dollars in bribes to Garcia Luna. The this facilitated the importation of multi-tons of quantities of cocaine and other drugs into the United States. On two occasions, Garcia Luna's bribes arrived by carrier cartel members personally delivering briefcases containing $3 million to $5 million, prosecutors said. By the time Garcia and Luna left government and relocated to Florida, he had amassed a personal fortune worth millions of dollars, they said. The government has interviewed numerous other cooperating witnesses who have confirmed that the cartel paid the defendant tens of millions of dollars over several years in exchange for the defendants, that is the cartel's protection. One of the most powerful drug cartels, cartels in the world the Sonola cartel is known for its violence and drug trafficking, and over the decades, the cartel has directed a multi-billion-dollar narcotics trafficking empire, shipping huge quantities of drugs from Latin America into the United States, including cocaine, heroin, marijuana, methamphetamines, and par- prosecutors have, having arrested Garcia Luna see him as a significant flight risk the defendant prioritized his personal greed over his sworn duties as a public servant and assured the continuing continued success and safety of one of the world's most notorious trafficking organizations, they wrote in an attempt to block any bail being set for him. Church, let me tell you, the Mexican government's official position was his position was to direct efforts to curb drug trafficking. That's the job that he had. He was the top dog in Mexico's equivalent of our FBI. Greed, self-serving, self-promotion. You know, Socrates, I I know we're familiar with Socrates. He described greed, greed like this. He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. We also talk about Rockefeller. Somebody asked him, how much money do you need? And he said, just a little bit more. This world promotes greed in various ways. Me first, me second, and me third. And if anything is left over, I'll save it for myself later. (laughs) The Bible promotes giving. Jesus first, others second, myself last. When we act like the world, we move away from being like our Lord. But the more we take on the attributes of our Lord, the closer we move to him. Of all those who were in any way responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, the largest share of the guilt lies at the door of the religious leaders. The Roman soldiers were instruments. The Jewish people were blind agents of it. The scribes and chief priests conceived the idea, suggested it, and urged it. How is it that people crowded into the temple hearing sincere, inspiring words of the greatest teacher of all time, and the religious leaders there were unmoved. How is that? The religious leaders, they were the educated ones. They were the leaders. They studied the religious law. They were familiar with its words. Despite all their knowledge, study, and position, they failed to understand Understand the divine will, and the way to eternal life. The religion they taught was heartless. It was a service without a soul in it. It was a surrender of freedom that did man no good and gave God no pleasure. They were so blind So deceived, so off track, so polluted and so misdirected that when the truth came in the person of Jesus to reveal the father, these great leaders, instead of being eager to hear and learn, sought to kill him. Jesus came and his words sought to change the way they were to live. And instead of accepting the change, they rebelled and sought to silence him. Yes, the truth would have changed their place. Yes, they might have to change their rituals, their formalities, their mindset, their self promotion and self interest and their life. But for them, church, it was too much to ask. They were too comfortable in their own ways and in their own way of life. What about us? Are we too comfortable to change? Does the world have too much to offer? Are the bribes too big to resist? Can we afford not to change? We can't afford the cost of life without Christ. So where do we go from here, church? In Jesus' solemn time with his disciples... Jesus told them in verse 25, In this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of of the people. Verse 26, But among you it will be different. This is our calling. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Church living as a servant really is the best way to live. We're no longer concerned with getting the best seat in the house. I don't have to have the be served first. We don't have to worry about receiving honor and credit. We don't have to walk around with our pride being bruised, our hurt feelings, our disappointed with expectations. Because all we want to do is serve. A servant always has a place and is always welcomed. Who do you want in your home? A cook or the a, a government official? <laughs> uh, the government official is going to make me work hand, work hand and foot trying to 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 meet their needs. But a cook is going to help me. <laughs> A plumber is going to help me. An electrician is going to help me. Somebody who someday has something to offer and serve is going to help us. And that's the kind of people we need to be. So we should start like this. Because a servant is always welcomed. Serve like the servant of all servants. The servant of all servants is known also as the king of all kings. The way he did it. That's the way we imitate and become more like Christ cut your fingernails get to work and serve that's what our calling is and that's what we should do we should take up the flag of Christ and plant it everywhere we go not as people that want to be served but the people that are serving and we do it because we want to be like Christ like Christ Del Rose you got a song that goes with this (laughs) How about Aaron? Aaron, uh, um, oh yes, Aaron! I didn't know you played the guitar so well. <laughs>